Hey, Vince McMahon, it's time for this week's Stick to Wrestling podcast. Oh, no, give me a break. Oh, brother. Girlfriend's four post bed because that's where I listen to the Stick to Wrestling podcast. I want to thank my friends at Sugar Ray for writing that song about their favorite podcast, Stick to Wrestling. I can't believe that song is 22 years old, but if you give us 60 minutes, perhaps indeed, we will give you a raw bone podcast. I'm aware that there are other podcasts out there, but there's only one wicked good podcast, and you're listening to it. It's Stick to Wrestling with John McAdam. Before we get rolling, I invite you to follow me on Twitter. Just put in John McAdam and follow the guy who has Don Morocco and Moondog Maine fighting with chairs in his avatar. You also want to follow us on Facebook. Join our Facebook group. Just put in Stick to Wrestling and join it. I know Facebook stinks. I lie to my friends and family. I tell them I'm not on Facebook, and I only do it for the wrestling content. No pictures of cats or anything like that. I'm going to give you even more evidence that you want to join the Facebook group. Mark Rowland put up a question. What if Randy Savage and Kevin Sullivan formed a tag team in your promotion? Name this tag team. And we had some good answers. The Macho Diablos. Satanic Panic. I like that one. Macho Darkness. Once again, you want to join the Facebook group because today we are taking questions from the Facebook group in our mailbag episode. We have not done a pure mailbag episode in forever so here we go brad breitzman asks how did the awa explain why dusty Rhodes was a baby face in the awa when he came in for some key spots in 1975 while the baby face turn occurred the previous year in florida i responded brad you're the awa expert i should be asking you this and brad says i know but i honestly don't know how he was such a heel with murdoch in the awa and suddenly he's teaming with the Crusher. And then Bob Parsons, who knows his stuff, has been a guest on this show and will be back, said they did the same thing with Pompero Firpo. He's gone for a while, and he returns as a babyface without content. The only thing different about him was he was beating up bad guys instead of good guys. Excellent answer, Bob. Thank you for sharing your information. And yeah, that's usually kind of what happened. I mean... In the WWF, Rene Goulet had been a babyface in and out of the territory forever. And then in 84, he just starts wearing this bizarre black cape and this Michael Jackson silver glove, and he's a bad guy. And it just, you know, one day, boom, that's who he is. Um, I mean, another example, I was reading one of the aftermags in 84, and I see this guy named Black Bart, who I knew as Hangman Rick Harris from the WTBS tapings. He was a jobber there. And, you know, then he's just on WTBS in 1985 as Black Bart. That's how it went. Another good example, Hulk Hogan just shows back up in the WWF after being a bad guy from 1979 through 1981. Bob Backlund briefly says, oh, yeah, you know, Hulk has changed his ways. No mention that he ever was managed by Fred Blassie. No connection to the Iron Sheik, nothing. That's just how the wrestling business went back in the day. Steve Piccarillo asked, do people know what David Von Erich looked like when they discuss his potential? And and Steven was kind enough to put a photo of Rocky Dennis from Mask on there. Steve, Steve, Steve. Yes, that's why it would have worked. David Von Erich was anything but handsome. 
He was not even an average-looking guy. He was butt ugly. He looked like a giant praying mantis, mantis, excuse me, with his buck teeth, with his weird red hair, this gangly, wiry dude. That's why it would have worked, because he was butt ugly, and he would have been a great heel. No one would have liked him. The girls liked, I don't know, Gino Hernandez, Chris Adams in world class. David Von Erich, he was a legit six foot seven. He was a legit athlete. And he was god-awful, ugly dude, and I think that's why it would have worked. So, yeah, it was taken into consideration, my friend. Chris Tabar says, who is the guy in either JCP or the WWF that should have gotten a much bigger push, either staying in the same company or switching to the other? I mean, the, the number one guy I have always said was Dick Slater. Dick Slater was grossly underused and put in the wrong role in the WWF as a babyface calling himself the rebel. His interviews were just not in sync with the character. And Slater was one of the top guys in the business when he went to the WWF in 1986. Was it 85 or 86? I think it was early. It was early 1986. He um, had been a top heel, the top heel in Mid-South Wrestling before that. He was the North American champion. He was the top guy everywhere he went before that, and it was like he didn't know what to do with himself in the WWF, and they didn't know what to do with him. So he's, yeah, I think Dick Slater could have been NWA champion in in, an alternative universe. Uh, Another guy who doesn't come up, I thought Brady Boone could have been a lot more in the WWF right around the same time. He was a little bit small, but he could wrestle, and he did great high spots, I think. At minimum, they build him as Billy Jack Haynes' cousin, and I have no reason to think that wasn't legit. So they could have put them, those two in, in a regular tag team, and I think that could have been money. So those are my two picks. Steve Crawford, when should have Crockett moved on from Dusty as Booker, and who should have replaced him? I have a lot to say about this. Crockett, I think he would have had to put a gun to Jim Crockett Jr.'s head. After Dusty had been fired by the new management, Jim Crockett would frequently write letters to the management at WTBS saying that the only guy who can be the booker who can get this done is Dusty Rhodes. This is long after Dusty's magic had completely worn off and he was completely out of ideas. And his booking put Jim Crockett Jr. out of business. And Crockett still had his back, I mean, forever. However, if for whatever reason Jim Crockett had to have fired Dusty, I think he would have gone with Tully Blanchard. Tully had Jim Crockett's ear from what I understand. Tully had been Booker for a while in Southwest, so he had experience. And believe it or not, you know, if you're the booker in a wrestling promotion, you don't just hand these guys a script and they just do whatever you say. You have to have a locker room presence. You have to have the respect of the locker room. I think Tully had that. I don't know how well Tully would have done as booker, but I think that would have been Crockett's pick. Who would have been my pick? First guy who came to mind is Eddie Gilbert. Eddie had a successful run in 1986 and early 1987 as Bill Watts Booker. He knew his stuff. In 1988, he did a great job in Continental booking that territory. So, I mean, he just, you know, 
used every angle that he remembered from his childhood and hotshotted everything, but it was an excellent television program. But that's the thing. Eddie Gilbert, I don't think, would have had the locker room presence in the NWA. Like, I can't see Ric Flair, Dusty Rhodes, Arn Anderson marching to the music that Eddie Gilbert played. I just didn't see it. Another guy fits the same bill, Bill Dundee was successful as a booker in Memphis and Mid-South, but I don't think he could have walked into that locker room and immediately had gotten the respect. He can't just say, hey, this guy's the booker, you got to do what he says, and it runs that way downhill. It, It doesn't. The guy I ultimately would have hired, who has a great mind for the business and would have had the the locker room's respect right away is Terry Funk. Terry Funk has a brilliant wrestling mind and a former NWA champion. Everyone respects Terry. That's the guy I would have gone with. And Steve also asked, you know, when should they have made the move? I mean, definitely Starcade 87 would have been it for me if I were Jim Crockett. And I would have been, you know, Dusty deserved respect. And, you know, he was the booker at Crockett for three years at that point, and he just run out of ideas. If I was Jim Crockett, I would have said, Dusty, you know, I'm putting someone else in charge of creative. You know, you're still Dusty Rhodes. You're still going to be a top guy in this company. I just feel like we need something different, and we're not going to rule out you being reinstated as booker at some point. But, yeah, I mean, before Starcade 87, it became obvious to me that Dusty – was done. The arrow was pointing downward, and from what I've heard, Dusty and Crockett had a meeting where, you know, Crockett expressed his concerns. This is right after Starcade or right before Starcade 87, and Dusty made some, I don't know, he, he made some adjustments. He put Jim Cornette in charge of the Midnight Express's programs. He put Kevin Sullivan in charge of Kevin Sullivan's programs. He rushed Lex Luger's turn. Lex Luger was not supposed to turn right after Starcade 87, but they moved that forward. And they also moved forward the Midnight Rider angle. And for those, you know, if you were around watching the NWA in 1988, early 1988, it was the Midnight Rider hour. Every interview was about the Midnight Rider, whether it be a babyface, a heel, whoever. I could see J.J. Dillon talking about it. I could see Ric Flair, Kevin Sullivan. But, I mean, Jimmy Valiant is on TV talking about the Midnight Rider. Paul Jones is talking about the Midnight Rider. And when the angle just completely flopped and they dropped it with no explanation, like, to me, that's like, I mean, if I'm Dusty, I'm you know, I'm like, okay, I'll resign as Booker. I'm, I'm clearly, things are not going well. But that's just not what happened. But anyway... Anthony Osiello writes, when I think of classic territory wrestling from the 60s to the early 80s, I think of lengthy title reigns that stress the importance of both the title and the champion. I was recently looking at the AWA title history and was surprised to see that the world title switched 25 times in the 60s prior to the start of Vern doing long reigns beginning in late 1968. Any idea why the title flipped with Attitude Era frequency during this time? It seems out of place. Um, I'm speculating here, but I don't think the AWA title, it was new at that point, and I don't think it was really a world title the way the NWA title was. And even the WWF title 
at that point really wasn't up to snuff with the NWA title. And one thing I noticed in the aftermags when I was a kid is that they would, you know, every now and then they'd give you the history of the NWA World's Heavyweight Championship and they'd give you the history of the WWWF Championship, but they never gave the history of the AWA title. And as a young teenager, I wondered why. And then in 1980, I bought a book called The Main Event, written by Roberta Morgan. It got pushed on WWF TV, and it had the history of the AWA title, and my mind was blown. Yes, Anthony, the title changed hands frequently, you know, comparable to the United States Championship in Crockett, comparable really to any regional title, and I think that's the answer. Back in the 60s, the AWA Championship really was a regional title. Okay, Al Bletcher asks, what current day wrestler in either WWE, AEW, or Impact would you consider the most 70s? By that, I mean you could put them in a time machine back to the 70s and they'd fit right in. The first name I came up with was Nick Nemeth, a.k.a. Dolph Ziggler. I think he is fantastic. He's a great promo. He's a fantastic wrestler. He's an excellent athlete. He has an amateur background, and they blew it with him. I mean, he's never going to be the star he should have been. And the big reason is, number one, the name Dolph Ziggler stinks. In 2012, 2013, when it seemed like they were trying to give him a big push, I was saying, look, rename him and just go out and say, I'm not Dolph Ziggler anymore. I'm Nick Nemeth. That's it. They gave me that dumb name when I was part of the the cheer squad or whatever they were. And no, this is my name, Nick Nemeth. And they put him in a faction with AJ Lee. They tried to have them seemingly romantically linked, and they had no chemistry whatsoever on television. It was Dolph Ziggler, AJ Lee, and Big E was like kind of his bodyguard. And it it totally didn't work. And that was really the last time they they gave him a major push. And it's sad because he was a a, a great wrestler, in my opinion. Uh, Second guy I thought of, Roman Reigns, is phenomenal. He is a generational talent, and I think he would have fit in in any era. Just, you know, a solid athlete. He was a defensive end at Georgia Tech. He's got the look. He's a good-looking guy, big guy. He has the family lineage. He would have gone over in any era. And finally, the guy I I say is number one is Chris Jericho. Chris Jericho has reinvented himself so many times as time has gone on. And, you know, he keeps ahead of the game. And I think he would have adapted at any point in his career. One of my favorite wrestlers ever, Chris Jericho, right up there with like Terry Funk and Jerry Lawler. Big fan of Chris Jericho. I am. Jesus Salas Rodriguez asked, Which wrestling magazines were the best and the worst, in your opinion? I put a lot of time into this, thinking about this, because the Kitzer magazines were better than the After magazines in a lot of ways. I mean, Kitzer gave you straightforward news. After, like, made up his own storylines, his own angles, etc. But at the end of the day, if I had to choose back in the late 70s, early 80s, I would have gone with the After magazines. We kind of complain that the news from the after magazines, when it got to us, 
it was like six, seven, eight weeks old. But they were still the fastest. If the AWA championship changed hands, the after magazines would let me know a lot quicker than any other magazine out there. If Sergeant Slaughter went to Mid-Atlantic Wrestling, I would learn that in the after magazines. And that, that was important to me. Even though the, the news was dated, I was still getting the news. So And Keitzer, they had detailed descriptions of what was going on in every territory, but by the time you got it, it was months and months old. Plus, the after magazines had really good pictures, so we'll go with them. The worst was Wrestling Review or the Big Book of Wrestling. It's, it came from the same company. I couldn't figure out the, or couldn't find the name of the publisher that put them out, but they were, these things were garbage. They were the only mags on the newsstand that I did not read. I bought them a couple of times. They were printed on the cheapest paper imaginable. As you were thumbing through the pages, your hands would turn black because the, the, the ink was literally pouring off the pages. They had old pictures from minor league territories. It really looked like just a, a, a garbage magazine. Uh, Sam Nord asks, what wrestling that you remember loving in your youth do you rewatch as an adult and realize maybe I should have left that as a memory? The stock answer is ECW, and it's the stock answer because it's true. ECW did not age well at all. I think part of it is ECW when, you know, in the early mid-90s, it was unique. It was something that had never been done before. I stayed up. I mean, I got up early in the mid to late 90s, you know, went to work. And Friday night, I would stay up and watch the midnight airing on some Channel 68 in Boston of ECW because I liked it that much. And at the time, once again, what they were doing was unique. They did things that had never been done before. And after WWF and WCW and all of the indies started copying what ECW was doing, it was no longer unique. And you look back and you're just like, oh, man, that was kind of trash. Another one, and this might surprise some people, is world-class championship wrestling. I mean, I rewatched it on WWE Network when that was around, and it was nowhere near as good as I remember it, And which is not to say it wasn't good. I mean, world-class had some great moments, but like I said, it just wasn't as good as I remember it. Another one, Smoky Mountain Wrestling. I know, right? It was the last territory. And I've said this on the show before. I used to get tapes from Smoky Mountain Wrestling from a gentleman in Tennessee. And I would say to myself, okay, I'm going to watch one show today, one show tomorrow. I'm going, and I'm not going to just, you know, ingest all of this. And of course, one show led to another. And by the end of the night, I had watched all four episodes because I was that hooked. And I watched a lot of Smoky Mountain Wrestling maybe four or five years ago. And once again, it just wasn't as good as I remember it. Uh, But that's the thing. You know, maybe wrestling, like someone has said to me once that like Dynamite Kid versus Tiger Mask matches, they do not hold up well in 2021. They weren't supposed to. They were supposed to entertain you at the moment. And that's what ECW and SMW did. World class as well. But yeah, you know, maybe Sam's right. You know, leave that memory alone. Ah, Scott Cornish asked, what living wrestler? Or wrestling personality, would you most like to meet that you have not met to date? That one's easy. Vince McMahon. I would love to meet Vince McMahon. And I wouldn't just shake his hand 
and say, oh, Vince, you're God, you're the greatest. You know, I, I really feel like I could have a conversation with Vince McMahon. I could tell him that, you know, I grew up watching WWF in starting in 1976. Vince owned the Cape Cod Coliseum, and I'm pretty sure he owned a minor league hockey team at the time that played at the Cape Cod Coliseum because we would be watching wrestling on Channel 56, and he would preempt one of the matches to have a guy, I think the team was the Cape Cod Buccaneers, because they had a guy in a Pirates outfit come out and tell us that, you know, we should go watch this minor league hockey down in Cape Cod. And I could share that memory with Vince McMahon. Another guy I would love to meet that I have never met is Triple H. And I really wonder if Triple H knows who I am, because he grew up here in Nashua in the early 90s. You know, he and I went to the same high school. My mom worked with his mom at United Healthcare. Uh, so I, I just wonder, like I said, if he knows who I am. Like, there are people in wrestling that I've met very briefly. Like, for example, I know someone who knows Jim Ross, and Jim Ross, he says Jim Ross knows who you are. So if Jim Ross knows who I am, I'm thinking Triple H might, seeing as we're from the same hometown. All right. Ron Wayne, we've always heard that when an NWA member was threatened by another promotion in the 50s, 60s, and 70s, other promoters would send their best to the company in trouble. Why didn't this happen in the 80s when Vince went after Calgary, St. Louis, and others? Also, if they try this, would the NWA survive as a group of territories into the 90s? Okay, by the time Vince McMahon expanded in 1983-1984, I think the promoters had far less of a team player mentality. I think Eddie Graham seemed to care less about the NWA and more about just championship wrestling from Florida. I think he was burning out on the business, as a matter of fact, as well. Fritz von Erich, once again, I don't think he cared about the NWA anymore. He cared about world-class championship wrestling. He was happy promoting in Texas, and if Vince was raiding Calgary, raiding St. Louis, he just didn't care. <laughs> I, think, I think it was that simple. They didn't have the, the team mentality that they once had. Um, I mean, if you look, in 1974, they had the Battle of Atlanta, and the NWA promoters made sure that Gunkel's promotion, All South Wrestling, got buried. If, if Gunkel ran a show, the NWA would send in an all-star roster on the same night to compete with that show. Then in 1975, the IWA was in the Carolinas. It was in typical WWF territories, and it was largely ignored. Like No one went to war against the IWA, and it soon fizzled out. And I think the NWA promoters might have learned the wrong lesson from that. It's like, well, you know, and really that's what they did. They just kind of laughed at Vince in 1984 and said, okay, let's wait until this guy spends himself out and he'll go away and things will be back to normal. And that's obviously not what happened. It almost happened. If, if WrestleMania one had not been a success and it looked like coming in, it wasn't going to be, then Vince would have been in serious trouble. But there was a, a large walk up for whatever reason the day of the first WrestleMania. For whatever reason, people tended not to buy tickets in advance for closed-circuit showings. And you know, Vince was running around trying to cancel as many arenas as he could, and he later learned, hey, closed-circuit was a walk-up business, 
And closed circuit would soon be dead in favor of pay-per-view, which is a lot better. Jason Brown asks, did exposure to the Wrestling Observer and other inside news sources immediately change the way you enjoyed pro wrestling? Immediately it did. Immediately I got my, my peek behind the curtain and I couldn't get enough. I wanted to learn more about the business. You know, not so that I can chant a guy's real name at him, which some people did, which, you know, come on, don't do that. I had been a wrestling fan for over 10 years when I first got The Observer. I think my first, the time I got it was Friday, December 12th, 1986. I'm pretty sure that was the day I came home really late from a Christmas party, and I get home, and there's three issues of The Observer waiting for me. I, I couldn't believe what was in front of me. The biggest thing I learned from those issues, I suspected Andre the Giant was turning heel. They had thrown out a few little hints here and there, and Dave confirmed it. He confirmed that they were going to run the arena. God, why can't I think of this? The one outside of Detroit where the Lions play, they were going to have a WrestleMania there. You know, and Dave was like, this is not going to work. This is, you know, not going to work at all. And he was wrong. And you know, wow, oh, Dave made a prediction that was wrong. Like, none of us have done that. But Dave was guessing it would draw, like, you know, 30,000, 40,000, and it would look half empty, and he was wrong. That was one of the greatest, the the Silverdome, thank you, was one of the greatest sites being filled up for Andre and Hogan in wrestling history. And it changed wrestling history. I mean, they grossed $17 million. No, the WWF doesn't get to keep all of that, but they got to keep a lot of it. And my understanding is Bill Watts took one look at that and said, that's it, I'm out of here. And he immediately sold to Jim Crockett. You know, before, if he hadn't sold to Jim Crockett, he would have either sold the company to someone else or he would have folded it. And that's right from Watts himself. All right. Gareth Ian Mitchell asks, what stars from the 70s and 80s would not last in today's era and why? Well, I'm not going to get into names, but the substance abuse guys would not have made it. If anyone today has a problem like that, they're not in the wrestling business. It's that simple. The WWF and AEW each have wellness programs, and both of them are taken seriously. When Eddie Guerrero died in 2005, the WWF said, that's enough. We're taking this seriously right now. And then when the Chris Benoit tragedy occurred, like, they stepped on the gas. They're like, we're not letting this happen again. We're not going to let someone like, you know, Chris Benoit, who I, I think he had legitimate brain trauma issues. I know what he did was a really evil thing, but I think, again, he had been concussed so many times that his brain just wasn't right. I, I believe that. But, yeah, I, I think Vince McMahon just said, look, I'm not going to let a guy like Chris Benoit or, or someone like Eddie Guerrero bring my business down. You guys are going to be tested, and I'm going to be serious about it. You know, the thing about wrestling a lot of people don't realize is that there's a lot of sitting around going on, and I, I mean a lot. You have to get up early. You know, back in the day, you had to get up really early, get on the first flight out, which was 6 a.m., so now you got to sit on a plane, then you got to go rent a car, work out, get to your hotel room, then you get to the locker room, and the guys, most promotions, the card started at 8 o'clock, and you had to be there at 7 o'clock. And if your match doesn't start until 10, that's three hours of sitting around. So 
I guess my point is that these guys are bored. They're on the road. They're on their own. And they felt like a lot of them felt like there was nothing else to do but party. And that brought a lot of guys down. And I am generally against drug testing. I am generally against prove your innocence programs. But the reality is that the WWE had a problem on its hands and I felt like they had to address it. So I'm, I'm willing to make an exception there. All right. Uh, I mean, there's a story about Hillbilly Jim quitting the WWF in, what was it, 1986. He had been on the road 70 consecutive nights, and he was supposed to get time off. And every week they'd tell him, well, no, Jim, you know, this guy's hurt. You need to sub for him. And then the next week he'd be like, no, you can't have, you know, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday off like you're supposed to because of some other reason. And finally, he just cracked and walked out. And they, they took him back eventually. But, you know, 70 days on the road straight is incredible. I personally knew someone in the wrestling business who, after the show was over one night, he took the red eye home. And just so he could see his own place, just so he could sleep in his own bed, and he took the 6 a.m. flight back out, and he was talking about how the flight crew was looking at him said, what are you doing? And, you know, he the guy flew like two or three hours each way just so he could spend six or seven hours at his own home. So that's how crazy the wrestling business could make you back in the day. Mark Matsuo asks, who else in the WWF in 1990 could have taken the Ultimate Warrior spot? Well, the obvious answer, I think, is maybe Sting. I think Sting had a lot more charisma than Ultimate Warrior, but Warrior was a lot bigger than Sting, so he was kind of more of Vince McMahon's taste, if you will. You know, a Warrior was, what can I say? The guy was huge. Look at the Michelin man. You know, Warrior was hated in the newsletters. I mean, they hated him, but to me, he does not get enough credit. I mean, people talk about Vince McMahon forced the Ultimate Warrior down everyone's throat. No, he didn't. Vince brought him in seemingly without a plan in early 1987. He saw something in him, so he put him on the road against Harley Race. And before you knew it, the guy got over on his own. Vince didn't push Ultimate Warrior down anyone's throat. And it took him a long time. In 88, they substituted him for Brutus Beefcake at SummerSlam. Surprise, wins the Intercontinental Championship and just grows into the role. And before you know it, He's main eventing WrestleMania against Hulk Hogan, and he wins the title in what was a really good match at the time. And I've said this before, I think Ultimate Warrior was not pushed correctly as champion, as opposed to just having Hulk Hogan, you know, as opposed to, okay, Ultimate Warrior is the top guy now, and we're going to let him get over. They kept pushing Hulk Hogan as the top babyface, and... Warrior was never embraced as the top guy, and I think he could have gotten over as WWF World Champion, but they didn't push him the right way. All right, Jerry Joy asks, If the AWA does the Bockwinkle-Heenan split, what name do you bring in to feud with Bockwinkle? Uh, You know what? I should have asked Jerry uh, to clarify the question because it depends on when they were going to do it. In the 70s, mid-70s, late 70s, the After Magazines, were constantly pushing a Nick Bockwinkle, Bobby Heenan split. You know, they would do hot seat interviews where they, you know, it sounded like Bockwinkle was unhappy with Heenan, and Heenan would do interviews where he was like, you know, no, Nick is my guy, I keep him in line. 
So I think they were the AWA was at least thinking about switching Nick Bockwinkel to a babyface in, you know, mid-70s, late-70s, and they, they didn't get around to it until, like, 85 or 86. But I, th- I think he would have been fine earlier as a babyface. If you wanted to bring in a guy to have Heenan, you know, get his revenge, I mean, the obvious guy to start with is Ray Stevens. I mean, he was part of Heenan's family for a long time. They turned him in 1977, but if they had held off on that turn, Ray Stevens would have been the obvious Bobby Heenan revenge figure, as it were. Now, I've said on the show many times, there are some guys who you cannot turn. You can't turn Vern Gagne, okay? You can't just say, oh, that's Bobby Heenan's guy that he's going to get revenge on Nick Bockwinkle with. I mean, you know, it, it has shock value, um, but, you know, sometimes that's not always the best way to go. The guy I would have gone with, and you can turn this guy, is Billy Robinson. Just have Bobby Heenan write Billy Robinson the great big check, and Billy Robinson would have worked as a heel in the AWA. I know he had been a babyface for a long time, but I think that would have worked. I think it would have drawn money. Okay, Ron Wayne asks, do you think David Sammartino may have been more successful had he gone by David and some other Italian surname. I'm guessing like David Danucci or David Parisi. In my opinion, absolutely not. I am not as down on David Sammartino as a lot of people are. I thought he was okay. A lot of people thought he was really, really bad. But I think if you take away the fact that he's Bruno Sammartino's son, there's nothing left. I mean, there's just nothing left. I am a little bit surprised that he didn't have a better career based only on the fact that he was Bruno Sammartino's kid. I mean, how does Bruno Sammartino's kid not get over in the Northeast? But it just it just didn't happen. You know, it's, it's a bit like David Flair. Like you'd say, Ric Flair's kid, how does he not become a big star? Because he's David Flair. He just wasn't that good. Same thing with David Sammartino. I think, again, had he not been Bruno's son, I don't know if he would have even gotten his foot in the door. <laughs> I'm sorry. Nothing against the guy. Jesus Salas Rodriguez asks, which is your favorite promotion in Japan and which year? It's kind of a tough one because all Japan had some crazy good years in the 90s. But at the end of the day, I'm going to go with New Japan. And I say that because I think the all Japan heavyweights were better But New Japan, I mean, their heavyweights were good, and they had the junior heavyweights, which really made it. I mean, they they had so many great junior heavyweight matches in the 80s and 90s. If I had to pick one year, I would say New Japan in 1990, but maybe a little bit of a surprise. I liked FMW a lot in 1992. I mean, I know now we look at it, it's garbage wrestling. We already talked about ECW and how it doesn't hold up well. Well, FMW does not hold up well at all. But it was something different when it first came out. And I was talking on Twitter about this. You know, people say, oh, Memphis spawned ECW. Well, not really. FMW spawned 1992 Memphis. And I think that had a bigger impact on ECW. Okay. Matt O'Donnell asks, at what point should they have stopped using the Mankind character and just let Mick Foley be himself? I loved the fact that Mick Foley had three different personas that he could juggle. I mean, the the Mankind thing, when I first saw it, I hated it. 
and Mick Foley made it work. Yeah, I remember when he did the mandible claw on Jim Ross, and all of a sudden he pulls back and says, Someone, someone's got to help Jim, he's hurt. It was one of the greatest television segments of all time. Another one of the greatest television segments of all time is when he came out as Dude Love, as Steve Austin's tag team partner, and then they worked the angle where Vince McMahon just kind of stole Dude Love's soul. Those were great days of Raw back when you know I couldn't stand WCW, and I couldn't believe that I liked the WWF more than I liked WCW, but there we were. So I, if those, I believe those Raws are up on WWE Network, and I think after I'm done recording, I'm going to relive them. They were so great. Jerry Joy asks, name a wrestler you think could have been a big money program versus Bob Backlund for the WWF Championship. I mean, the the most obvious one is Ric Flair. And I, I recently learned that Ric Flair was given strong consideration, or some consideration, I should say, to take over for Terry Funk in 1977 when Harley Race was put in as NWA champion. So if they're thinking about Ric Flair in 1977, I think Ric Flair did the right thing staying out of the WWF and and not having a loss against Bob Backlund on his resume because back then things like that mattered. One guy I think who was noticeably missing, and he was supposed to come in at one point, was Terry Funk in 1980. I think he was supposed to come in and wrestle Bob Backlund after the 1980 Shea Stadium show. They talked about it in the aftermath that Terry Funk was coming in, and I'm not sure what happened, but Terry Funk would have been great against Bob Backlund. About 15 years ago, I get a personal message from Mark Nolte, who you know was a, a really close friend of mine at one point. Mark's no longer with us. And he, like with great urgency, is like, can I call you right now? I'm like, yeah, sure. And he needs to know, do you think Terry Funk would have gotten over in the WWF against Bob Backlund? I don't know why to this day Mark had to urgently ask me that question, but I was like, yeah, Terry would Terry would absolutely would have been great up here. He would have been right up there with Morocco and Valentine as one of Backlund's greatest challengers. And then he asked me, what about Dory? And I was like, I don't know about Dory. And the more I thought about it, Dory Funk would have been great in the WWF. I think he didn't have the physical charisma. He didn't have the physique. Facially, he wasn't charismatic, but I hated Dory Funk Jr. when he was in Florida. I mean, he was a, a sneaky, weasley heel. I, I absolutely couldn't stand the guy. I remember he came out and started something with Mike Graham, and Mike Graham wanted to fight him right there and then. And Dory kind of silked off, and he's like, no, I I have to go to a wedding. I have a wedding I need to attend. And I'm losing my mind. I'm like, you don't have a wedding to attend. You just won't fight Mike Graham. So Dory, maybe. But Terry, definitely. Another guy who would have had a great run against Bob Backlund. Mentioned him earlier on the show, Dick Slater. Dick Slater had it all in the late 70s and early 80s. As I mentioned earlier, I could see a world where he was NWA World's Heavyweight Champion and I just don't know what happened to him after he left the WWF. Rob Reigns writes, could Buddy Landell have been the NWA World's Heavyweight Champion? There are two ways I can answer this. I had someone say to me on Twitter, someone on my Twitter timeline was like, you know, I think Jake Roberts deserved a run with the WWF Championship. 
Now, I, I know when people say things like this, they mean well. They want to honor Jake Roberts. You know, they're saying something nice about Jake Roberts. But at no point was Jake Roberts the best pick to be WWF champion. At no point was Jake Roberts a, a better choice than Hulk Hogan. At no point was Jake a better pick than Randy Savage. So to answer the question that way, I mean, no. At no point was Buddy Landell a better pick than Ric Flair, a better pick than Sting, a better pick than Dusty Rhodes. And I loved Buddy. Buddy was a character both in front of the camera and behind the scenes. Trust me when I tell you that. I mean, he was a funny guy, but he was a character. To answer the question another way, like, is there, let's say Ric Flair just, you know, went to the WWF or something. Would Buddy Landell have been a pick or a contender to be NWA champion? I just don't see it. Again, I was a fan of Buddy Landell, but he was always best in kind of his Mid-South role when he was the Weasley guy hiding behind Butch Reed and Ernie Ladd and just doing sneaky heel stuff. I I just, I like that character. Eddie Gilbert was a lot like that in like 86, 87. You just can't make that character the NWA World's Heavyweight Champion. So again, as, as much of a fan as I was of Buddy Landell, I wish that all would have worked out for him in the NWA. Buddy tells a story, Buddy told a lot of stories about how he missed a TV taping in 1985, and instead of becoming NWA World's Champion, he wound up getting fired. And the story, you know, he's on a shoot interview telling it, and it just doesn't make sense. Buddy said that Ric Flair, at the end of 1985, had some sort of an emergency where he needed to take time off, and they were going to put the title on Buddy. When did this happen? Ric Flair never took any time off. So, you know, obviously, if Ric Flair needed time off, they would have put someone else in that place. So I I think that's one of pro wrestling's tall tales, if you will. Finally, Sean Heimberger asks, Hey, John, my question for the show. Neither of my two favorite childhood wrestlers are in the Wrestling Observer Hall of Fame. Which do you believe has the strongest case between Don Morocco and Ken Patera and why? Sean, I see these guys almost as being equals when it comes to being in the Wrestling Observer Hall of Fame. I think they're 90 to 95 percent there, but they're not 100 percent there, so I wouldn't vote for them. Unfortunately, they were two of my absolute favorites as well. At one time, I thought both of them were going to be the guys who replaced Bob Backlund. And and when Morocco came back in 83, I was convinced that Backlund's reign was over. That didn't happen. When Greg Valentine didn't win the title from Backlund in 1981, I thought for sure Patera was coming back and he was going to be the guy. Obviously, that didn't happen. If I had to pick one or the other, I think I would go with Morocco by a a tiny little bit. Morocco was the Intercontinental Champion longer. He was the champion twice. He had two big runs against Bob Backlund, and then he had a big run against Hulk Hogan in 1985. So I I guess that's what separates the two. Patera had a big comeback in 87 that kind of flopped. But at one point, there was talk that Patera would headline WrestleMania 4 after turning on Hulk Hogan, which never happened. I think when Patera came back in 1987, 
he just looked too old for the part. And, you know, hey, being in federal prison for two years will do that to a person. And they they pushed him so hard, and it just didn't happen, and that kind of stinks. But anyway, I know what some of you are saying. No guests on the Stick to Wrestling podcast? No, you guys were the guests. And I thank everyone for their questions. This was a planned show. There wasn't a guest that, you know, showed up or bagged out at the last second. I figured I'd try a show flying solo. And I'm going to be honest, this was like going into a restaurant and ordering something that you've never tried before. And you didn't hate it, but you're just not going to order it again. I I am much more happier speaking with someone. And that's what we're going to do next week and every other week after that. 159 episodes in, we tried something different. Like I said, back next week with another guest. I want to thank Lou Kippelman, who has been extremely patient throughout this entire recording process. Things did not go as linear as we usually like them to be. And I want to thank Lou for all of his patience. This has been a presentation of the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network. We'll see you next week. This concludes our podcast day. 